0: We've been spending time together on these previous Sundays with the book of James and we'll be looking at it for, uh, for a few more weeks leading out to Thanksgiving. I hope that uh, you've been able to take advantage of the little bookmarks that are in the worship folders and there are readings that if you follow those will keep you very much on this, this plan to, uh, to understand and read a little bit more in the book of James. If your small group of which you are uh, a participant is studying James, you be on this, this third section now, which uh, has to do with what James talks about in chapter 2, the verses are verses 8 through 13. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours today, from God our Father, from our Lord, and from our Savior Jesus. Amen. Two weeks ago, the theme that Pastor Chris began our series using was the word perseverance and in that opening section from James the writer addressing this dispersed group of people relatively new Christians throughout the Mediterranean world and into the Middle East urges and encourages and exhorts them with that one word, to persevere, because following Jesus, being a disciple, and remaining faithful, will require perseverance of you, because doing that is going to be very, very challenging. Last week, the reading that was before us spoke about what it was in addition to perseverance that would be required, these new Christians would have to face. And James identified it as trials and temptations. And he needed to reassure his followers that any temptation or trial does not come from God. Because in that stratified world, of the first century. In a world in which people were looking for relatively clear because effect solutions, problems, there was a tendency to make this equation. If something bad happens to you, it means you must have been bad. And if you are particularly fortunate it means that you've been particularly good. And so James writes to these Christians and reminds them, just because there are trials and temptations, and some of you will be taken in by that, never believe that God has sent those to you. They are a part of who we are and a part of this world, We know it as sin. We know it as temptation. So now we can check off perseverance. We can acknowledge that trials and temptations are a part of the life of faith. And we come out to the second chapter today, in which James identifies a type of disobedience, a type of sin. And it's wrapped around the identification of it is wrapped around this passage. And it begins this, and he quotes uh, Jesus, uh, and actually, which is the Old Testament. If you really keep the royal law that's found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, which he describes as the royal law, we know it as part of the golden rule. You are doing right, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you were here last week, I put up a slide that had the seven deadly sins on it. Do you remember some of those? I saw some folks writing them down last week, and sins such as, they were described as deadly, as opposed to the venial sins, these are the mortal sins. Greed, lust, gluttony, laziness, pride, a number of really horrendous things. And what I wondered when I read this passage from James is the same thing you might have been thinking. How is it and why is it that James would identify favoritism as a sin? when we've got all these other really ugly things that are out there. And he wants to point out favoritism. In the mid-1960s, a very uh, well-known reporter, CBS reporter named Edward R. Murrow, was able to secure an interview with the famed poet Robert Frost. He, uh, Edward R. Murrow had said he'd always wanted to do an interview with Robert Frost and finally, after years of effort, he succeeded in getting the interview. It was filmed or taped and in that interview, after uh, listening to Robert Frost read some of his poetry and I had the idea when I saw this, which was many years after it had actually happened. After that interview and the poetry readings, this is the question that Edward R. Merrill asked Robert Frost. And he asked him this question. What is the worst word in the English language? What is the worst word in the English language? Now, when I heard that question asked on, 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 uh, on this film, I immediately came up with the worst words. And I'll bet you can come up with what you think are the worst words, too. I thought it's going to be words like that are vulgar, profane, harsh, uh, derogatory, discriminatory, really evil, bad words. This is what Robert Frost said, and I still remember the video. Robert Edward Armero asks him the question, and he, he thinks, and then he says this. The worst word in the English language is... EXCLUSIVE. EXCLUSIVE. It seemed that even Edward R. Murrow, for all of his reporting skills, was taken by surprise. It wasn't what one would have thought. And then Robert Frost goes on to document historically, incident after incident, event after event in human history, when a sense of exclusivity has led to horrific and horrendous experiences and tragedies in the world. When I read this section from James and came across this passage, But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. I was reminded that is powerful language, very powerful language. And maybe Robert Frost had read this and knew that that tendency of who we are as human beings to want to segregate ourselves, to separate ourselves from other people According to some definition, and we of course know what skin color and religion and political beliefs, regions of the country and language, we know how those factors have been a part of that throughout human history. No wonder then that Robert Frost, the great poet, says the worst word in the English language is exclusive. Here's a word from the second chapter of Philippians. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, St. Paul writes, by being like-minded having the same love, and being one in spirit and in purpose. So James talks about favoritism. But look at the verse that's just ahead of it. And what gave rise to his thinking must have been that passage from the Old Testament which Jesus quoted. If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. The first one that goes ahead of it, if you probably remember, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember how that question came up in the New Testament. I'm sure you do, but let me remind you just in case you don't. A man goes to Jesus one day and asks him that question, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Having heard that, The man who asked the original question then asks the second question of Jesus. And this is the question. And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Then, if you remember, what Jesus did was tell a story. And the story that he told was the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, remember in that parable... It begins this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. He was robbed, he was beaten, and he was left alongside the road. And there came along a man who was a priest, and seeing him, he looked the other way and passed by on the other side. And after that came a man who was a Levite, and he also saw the man lying alongside the road, and he also passed by on the other side. And then there came a Samaritan, or, if you will, a foreigner. He came down the road, he saw the man lying along the side, immediately took care of him, put him on his animal, took him to the next town, provided for his well-being, said to the innkeeper, here's the money, if I owe you more, make certain that he is well. And then Jesus asks the question, which one of these do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The man who had asked the original question, of course, it's obvious. It was the Samaritan who had helped him. And do you remember what Jesus said? Go and do likewise. I think I understand, and I hope you will as well, why James uses this passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because James is the guy who, not in spite of, but along with faith and belief and grace and goodness and mercy and forgiveness and redemption, believes this. If you really want to honor what God is doing, go and do something. Make a difference. That's James' point. And he writes to these people of the early church, these ones that are spread out throughout the world, and he says, "I know that it's going to be tough. I know that it's going to be tough, but if you and, and you heard it expressed just a few minutes ago by Merle and Joanne, as they talked about this work with the folks who are homeless. And it was very clear, especially in Joanne's comments and Merle's comments as well. If you are able to be engaged in becoming host and extending hospitality to some of these folks, you are the one who will be enriched and will grow as a result. Whatever you've done with these other folks is really kind of peripheral. They get help, but you are the one who will be changed and will grow tremendously as a result of that. And I hope that you get a chance to talk with them right after worship and at least have that conversation about how it might happen. In the Lutheran Church, there is a, an order for confession and forgiveness that is in some Lutheran churches used every week and others not so frequently. But that, that uh, part of the liturgy for uh, confession and forgiveness includes words that sound like this. The congregation speaks these words together. Most merciful God, we confess to you that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and then these words, and by what we have left undone, and by what we have left undone. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he talks about two people passed by on the other side who did not do what they should have done. And the reason that they should have helped this man who had been beaten and robbed was based in Jewish law. They had an obligation, if you will, because they were part of the Jewish community, they knew the tradition, they knew the obligations of having to help this man who had been injured. If you will, there was a relationship, a contractual relationship, and they chose to ignore it. By what we have left undone. In the law, those who are bound legally to help another person who is in distress are those who have a legal and a contractual relationship to do so. For example, if I'm in trouble, I'm alongside the road. A law enforcement officer, perhaps a fireman or somebody in the public sector in that area of responsibility is bound, required, to offer assistance. It's part of the contract, the social contract. For the man, the the priest and the Levite, who avoided the man who lay in the ditch, it was the same. They were Jewish They believed that they would honor the law and when they did not honor the law by extending help, they violated that contract. In a sense, if you hired the plumber to come to your house, the plumber is looking at your plumbing, the toilet is overflowing, there's a contractual relationship, he's got to fix the toilet or else give your money back. Now, what's remarkable, in this passage from James, he quotes, love your neighbor as yourself, and in doing so makes this claim, there is no favoritism. There is no favoritism. And while that seems so obvious to us, Please recognize that in the world of this day, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, I hope you can see what he did, is that he changed the rules. And our Lord said this, If your responsibility to help another person used to be based on a contractual relationship, because you were Jewish, because you were in law enforcement, because you were in social services, because you were a physician, because you were a nurse, let me tell you something now. That contractual relationship exists between me and you and among every other person in the world. Because the defining nature of that contract is simply this. God has created us, and we are humans. For those who would choose to live in a legal relationship based on law, on contract, on obligation, and on rules, I hope and I'm sure you can recognize how absolutely radical and how absolutely disturbing were the teachings of Jesus. And our good friend James, in writing to these faithful Christians who are kind of trying to make their way and understand what does this relationship with God mean now, he needs to remind them (gasps) And it's not, you don't get to play favorites. You don't get to do that anymore. If you thought that you could only help your Jewish brothers and sisters, no. You have to help everybody. And he amplifies that example by saying, it's like this. Take the money out of your pocket, give it to the innkeeper, and say, whatever else is required, I'll pay you back on my next trip through. In no way is it about minimal obligation. It's about maximum obligation. So was it any surprise that these new Christians, having heard and believed what Jesus said, are beginning to hedge their bets. We wanted to follow Jesus. We wanted the promise of eternal life. We wanted to be part of a community of faith that will help care for us. And James reminds him, you get to do all of that, but let me tell you what the obligation and the responsibility is as well. Maybe that's one of the reasons that this letter and these words are so compelling for us today. It's not just about how we sin and what we do, it's what we fail to do when we know that there is something else that is going on. Remember the story of... uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Many of you read that or see the movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and the golden ticket, and how he got the golden ticket, and how he, you know, with all of those distressed elderly folks in that that little shack that they lived in, and Charlie goes after the golden ticket, and he gets it. And in the way that the story develops, he first of all believes that the golden ticket is going to be the solution to all his problems until he gets in the chocolate factory and find out there's obligation and responsibility. I thought of the golden ticket when I read that opening verse again about the royal law. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. And I'd like to think, that what we call the golden rule of love your neighbor as yourself is really a golden ticket. And because it's been given to us, but as Charlie found out in the story, when you get the golden ticket, you accept and buy into a certain level of responsibility and obligation. I love the story because Charlie got it right at the end. The theme of redemption, it all turned out well. And I wonder about those faithful people that James was writing to. The ones whom he may never have seen at that point in his life. But those who heard his words and said, You know, that does make some sense. It does make some sense. I hope in this chapter of James, as you've read it and you've listened to some of the ideas that I have, and having read it with you, that you would understand a little bit more thoroughly why James chose that theme of favoritism. And know this also. Favoritism does not leave. Favoritism is not just outside the doors of the community of faith. It makes its way in. And you know and I know that we do it ourselves. Even in the church. And it takes forms of thinking, I wonder why he or she doesn't pray like I do think like I do, believe like I do, contribute like I do. No wonder James wrote about it. Sociologically, sociologically, it's been demonstrated that humans tend to want to spend time and build relationships with people who are like, themselves that means age social class uh, skin color customs practices family size geography humans have always wanted to be together in groups with people who are like one another and it's that basic human tendency which Jesus addresses and James reinforces Love your neighbors because you have an obligation to all of them. Love your neighbors just as much as you love yourselves. Across all of those barriers and across all of those distinctions. Perseverance two weeks ago. Facing trials and temptations last week. Avoiding favoritism and loving our neighbors as ourselves. John's third, James' third message and third word to us today. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, your love for us is everlasting and although we frequently are the lawbreakers, we are also the ones who sometimes have left undone what we should have been doing. Help us to see every person, the powerless and the powerful, the wealthy and the washed up, those in the mainstream and those who are clearly out of it, as our brothers and our sisters. And help us and give us the wisdom and the insight and the eyesight to regard everyone, both inside our community of faith and outside of it, as worthy and credible because we are your children. Help us honor each person we encounter with an understanding of how we can grow and how we can be enriched by engagement and participation in their lives. And above all, Lord, help us honor and bless you by all that we say and by all that we do. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.